Welcome to Ground Truth, a podcast series that explores trends and developments in environmental justice, produced in partnership with the Environmental Law Institute and Beverage Endowment. The Ground Truth series is part of the Environmental Law Institute's People, Places, Planet podcast and Beverage Endowment, the Environmental Law podcast. Environmental justice, a movement dating back to the civil rights era, is defined by EPA as the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. The movement has gained new momentum in recent years. Under the Biden-Harris administration, we have already started to see unprecedented attention to environmental justice, or EJ, by the federal government, with states continuing to implement EJ-focused legislation, all of which has continued into 2022. It is becoming increasingly important for companies and municipalities to proactively address EJ issues, as the federal and state government's increased focus on it has potential to significantly impact organizations' plans and operations. And now, I'll turn it over to John for today's podcast. In this episode of Ground Truth, we're going to hear from my friend and somebody I greatly admire, Ben Wilson, the former chair of the environmental law firm of Beverage and Diamond, who is a recognized leader in environmental justice and an advocate his entire career, which now extends over four decades. I'm John Cruden at Beverage and Diamond. I've had the pleasure of working with Ben over uh, several decades. I consider him a friend, and I'll tell you, uh, as we introduce Ben, how we first met, because we met litigating against each other. Before I do that, however, I want to just tell you just little bite-sized pieces of this man that I call a friend, but an expert in environmental justice. Because today we're going to go over not just his career, but the amazing impact he's had on the formulation of what we now call an area of law. Just in December of 2021, so just not too long ago, Ben received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the American lawyer. He, you know, grew up in Mississippi and then left there and went to Harvard Law School and then later worked at the law firm of King and Spalding and had government service at the Department of Justice. But I, you know, where I know him best is where he came into the law firm of Beverage and Diamond in 1986, where he has done virtually everything that you can think of in environmental law, litigating, counseling, teaching. He is, without question, not only an expert in this area, but a tireless advocate. When I was chair of the American Bar Association's uh, section on environmental law, we give an annual award, it's highly sought after, for that person most dedicated to diversity and justice. And when I was chair, we gave it to Ben for his work, which I'll mention a little bit of teaching, uh, in addition to his other amazing background. You know, he, he established, people forget this, he established the African-American General Counsel and Managing Partner Network in 2012. And also he founded the Diverse Partners Network in 2008. Uh, and so he has been at this at a leadership level a long time. You know, I told you that I first met him when I was litigating uh, against him, I might add. We'll tell you about that story after a while. But I actually spent a lot more time because at one stage of my life, I was the president of the Environmental Law Institute, 
Ben became the chair of that nonprofit organization. We've also worked together, the American College of Environmental Lawyers and ABA and countless other places because of his great sense of professionalism and his willingness to give back to the profession. I, I mentioned that he has also been a teacher. I taught in his class once at Howard University Law School, and I can tell you right away that his students loved him. And so just with that quick introduction, there were really a lot more that I could say. I want to get right into this. And thank you, Ben, for uh, joining us and willing to tell the listeners a great story about environmental justice. Well, thank you, John. I'm very excited to be uh, with you and to have this discussion. We have been a great team, sometimes on opposite sides, but always with mutual respect and always with a higher goal in mind of improving the environment and improving life for people. So thank you so much. Ben, I want to start with the beginning. You know, you grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, and I just have to imagine what that would be like. This is truly the deep South. What was what was that like? And then did that have any impact on your lifetime commitment to justice in general and then more specifically to environmental justice? Well, thank you, John, for asking. And you're right. I'm a native of Jackson, Mississippi, and very definitely the Deep South. And I grew up in the 1950s and 1960s, a very rigidly segregated society. I was 11 years old, and uh, James Meredith's then wife was my student teacher when he was integrating the University of Mississippi. And I remember Medgar Evers was murdered uh, in the summer of 1963. That spring in Birmingham, there had been demonstrations that resulted in fire hoses. And, and later that fall in Birmingham, four little girls were killed when their church was bombed between Sunday school and church. And the following summer of 1964, I was 13, and that's when Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner were found buried in an earthen dam. So yes, my sense of justice was clearly based on that life experience. And John, I would hasten to add very briefly, I was inspired by a few lawyers that I knew, that I read about, and over time uh, got to know. One was Wiley Branton. Mr. Branton represented the students who were integrating the school at, at Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. I was six years old, and, and I had a chance to observe that. And uh, it was the first news story that I ever paid attention to. A little further south from us in New Orleans, there was A.P. Turo. And Mr. Turo represented uh, uh, Dorothy Bridges, the little girl who integrated the schools in New Orleans, memorializing that famous Norman Rockwell painting. A little black girl in a pristine white dr dress, ruler and books in hand, escorted to school by four headless U.S. US Marshals. And a, an errant tomato on the ground, a racial epithet scrawled on the wall. And that was uh, A.P. Turo handling that case. A little east of us uh, was Fred Gray, who at 24 was representing the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. A little east of him was Donald Hollowell, and he represented Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter Galt when they integrated the University of Georgia, escorted by a very young Vernon Jordan. And when my family moved to Nashville, I had a chance to meet Mr. Luby, who represented the students from Fisk University, 
who were sitting in at lunch counters and uh, were part of the Freedom Rides. And John Lewis was a part of that group. And so, yes, I was very much inspired uh, by their example and uh, very much inspired. Ben, when did you, did you know you wanted to go to law school then? I know you went to Harvard, but when did you finally decide that that would be a good pathway? Well, John, I must tell you, <laughs> I was probably instructed <laughs> by my father. Yeah, my mother wanted a minister, and uh, I wasn't quite certain I was uh, going to be an exemplar. of. Uh, uh, and I was argumentative. I liked writing. and. Uh, and I saw uh, the power of the law, the uh, the independence that lawyers could wield, and and so that was something that was of interest to me, and it's something that my father and mother encouraged. I had an uncle who was a lawyer. He graduated from Georgetown around 1960, and and so I knew something of the law based upon his experience, but but it was really more than anything this desire to play a role in uh, whatever the issues of the day would be and hopefully be a factor to make things better. And uh, that's and really... The, the really year important. that I became president of the D.C. Bar, uh, the featured speaker of uh, at, at my induction was Kurt Schmoke, who you know well, but he was at then the mayor of Baltimore. And he spoke then of the future of environmental justice, which he called the new civil rights. Uh, uh, that's how he uh, uh, was looking at it. I mean, you jumped in uh, feet first into environmental justice, but but what, did you also see a civil rights component to that? Absolutely. And uh, John, I should credit two friends, Nicholas Targ and Quentin Pear, who came to me at the time. Um, and they were saying, look, Ben, uh, there really should be a strong environmental law program at Howard University. And Kurt and I had been law school classmates. I also knew him. He, he played for Yale when I was at Dartmouth. And I had great admiration for him. And knowing the unique civil rights history of the Howard Law School, Charles Hamilton Houston, Thurgood Marshall, and a host of others, uh, too numerous to mention, we said to Kurt, listen, we think environmental justice will be the major civil rights issue of the 21st century. And of course, at that point, there was no Justice 40 initiative. There was no Biden administration. But uh, we really felt that this would be a, a cutting edge issue. And it certainly has become that. And we felt that Howard University ought be a leader in this area. And so that's what we cast our lot teaching there. Daria Neal, wonderful young woman, also from the Department of Justice, excuse me, teaches with us now. And uh, and so we're we are very, very grateful for that opportunity. Somehow during this transition that we're talking about, in my view, environmental justice became real as opposed to ephemeral. And I'm going to draw your attention to how we first met each other. So yes. I'm at the Department of Justice. I am the career deputy assistant attorney general and the Department of Justice uh, had sued the city of New Orleans for longstanding uh, sewer issues, Clean Water Act 
uh, issues. And you were on the other side from me. It was very contentious litigation, uh, which ultimately settled. And at that time, uh, this is, you know, late 1980s, 1990s, excuse me. Uh, then the reason why it settled, I think, uh, is because of you and, and because you brought to the table what I think is universally referred to as the first environmental justice supplemental environmental project. And a supplemental project is something that the court could not order, uh, but you could consider in negotiations. So I, I know that you uh, lectured on this case before, and it's somewhat celebrated. But for this audience who might not have heard about it, can you just describe, Ben, the, the environmental justice project that you initiated and, and why it was so important? I'd be pleased to describe it, John, except that uh, my recollection is that you were the author of this great idea. But uh, uh, rather than quibble, I'll just say together we were a very good team. But you're right. There were Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, alleged violations at that time against the Sewage and Water Board of New Orleans and the city. And this was a longstanding, difficult litigation, and we needed to come to a resolution. And ultimately, what the specific supplemental environmental project that we arrived at involved the uh, cleanup and restoration of a beach called Lincoln Beach. As so often the case in the Deep South, there were two separate beaches, a predominantly white beach called Lake Pontchartrain Beach, and then a predominantly black beach that was called Lincoln Beach. And after integration in 1965, Lincoln Beach was closed. Believe it or not, John, in the summer of 1965 at 14, I went to New Orleans as part of a program called the College Readiness Program, and we went to Lake Pontchartrain Beach, the previously all-white beach. I thought it was Disneyland. Uh, They had a merry-go-round and a Ferris wheel, and I just thought it was so exciting. But in the course of addressing this Clean Water Act issue, we planted wetlands grasses, which, as you well know, helped address the contaminants in the water, We restored the beach. We cleaned up that beach. It was a stand of live oaks, other plant life unique that was restored. And this was in the Ninth Ward, celebrated and and long recognized even before Katrina, but certainly recognized by the rest of the world after Katrina. And across the street from the Lincoln Beach was an area, a number of acres of abandoned white goods. And this was an area where a lot of inappropriate activity could go on, and it wasn't a safe place. You know, imagine young children playing around old refrigerators and stoves and other uh, household appliances. And so the other thing that we got done is we got that whole area cleaned up and restored so that it could be used by the community. I think it was President Kennedy who said, victory has a thousand fathers and defeat is an orphan. By the time we finished that, virtually every elected official between New Orleans and Baton Rouge took credit for that. (laughs) And I'm just fine with that. But I think what I was proudest of is we had cleaned up the environment. We had spent money that New Orleans, quite frankly, did not have, but we'd focused on addressing an issue that would benefit a community. 
And then in the ninth ward, as you know, is a African-American community. So this whole idea was this community that had received a the disparate negative impact was now receiving a benefit. And, and the SEP allowed us to deliver that benefit. And you can see the spirit of what we were doing there, John, repeated today in uh, President Biden's Justice 40 initiative, where the idea is to not simply talk about what we already know, that poor and minority communities so often receive a disproportionate share of the locally unwanted land uses, the Lulus, if you will. But we also want to be sure those communities receive the benefits. And so when I was a boy, it was not uncommon for one part of the town in, in the South to be connected to the sewer system and another part not. And uh, it was not uncommon to have a different type of garbage collection service in one part of the city and a different effort in another. And so things were separate and they were never equal. And not only is it related to education, but is it related to fundamental environmental services. And so clearly, whether you call this civil rights or plain old fashioned discrimination, the environmental justice movement, I think, was essential to get people to pay attention to these issues, not only those in government and not only those in industry, but people who live in the communities. And over the course of time, they spoke for themselves and and they helped lead this change. And fortunately, uh, lawyers have had an opportunity to, to play a part in it. And I believe will have an increasing role in affecting this transformation to uh, a more just approach to environmental issues and ensuring a fair distribution of environmental benefits as well. Ben, I started you with this celebrated case. Again, people have talked about that for some time, and the Lincoln Beach Project is well known. Listeners, you can go online and look up Lincoln Beach and see what happened, but it's extraordinary. But you taught this. You taught environmental justice in law school. You taught this particular program. And and, and I wanted you to start with that because it was a concrete example of environmental justice problem and, and a solution. But when you were teaching, what's the law of environmental justice? What did, what did you do in your course? How did you fit this celebrated case in it? What, what were you telling your students? Well, as you know, John, it started with an executive, not didn't start, but from the legal standpoint, uh, President Clinton signed his executive order. And the modern environmental justice movement arguably starts with uh, Warren County, North Carolina. And there was going to be a landfill there and this uh, largely black county. People were concerned about what was being deposited in that landfill near their community that might threaten their health. And the uh, protesters were arrested. One of those was uh, Congressman Walter Fontroy. And as a congressman, even though he was non-voting, he could request a GAO study. And they looked at 11 southern states, and that study showed that three quarters of these unwanted land uses, if you will, were in poor minority African-American neighborhoods. Subsequent studies, Charles Lee, a fellow that you know well, was the author of a very, very important study that also 
demonstrated these issues. But really, the law and bold relief comes through in the executive order. And as you know, John, unable to get Congress to pass the law, President Clinton signed this executive order. So with our students, we we start with a couple things. We typically start with Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. We talk about the approach that he took, gathering facts, meeting with the opposing side, and then taking direct action only if he felt there was no remedy. And for lawyers, we go to court, but the good lawyers gather the facts and they meet uh, with the opposing side to try to resolve issues without having to go to court. So we start there. I also encourage my students at the Howard University School of Law. I asked them about A. Philip Randolph, and uh, he was the leader of the sleeping car porters. And in 1942, he threatened a march on Washington when the uh, defense industries were not integrated. And so that was a major, major issue. And President Roosevelt issued that executive order, and that uh, resulted in sweeping change in wartime industries throughout the country. And so I wanted our students to understand why an executive order was necessary versus or why that approach was taken when a statutory approach was not necessarily available. But then, John, comes the most important word, I believe, in the practice of law, and that word is discretion. And you know it well as a uh, recognized uh, assistant attorney general for the environment for us under President Obama and one who's spent much of his career serving his country in various important capacities. But discretion is everything. And so in deciding which cases to bring, are any of those in poor minority neighborhoods? And deciding which water cases or air act cases or RICRA cases to bring or Superfund matters to pursue, are any of those going to result in benefit to poor minority neighborhoods? And all too often in exercising discretion this was not the case. And the other thing that Professor Richard Lazarus, and I give him all the credit in the world, is just a brilliant fellow. But long before he got to Harvard, when he was at Georgetown, he was writing these articles explaining that one could read EJ principles into the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, and that the Department of Justice, EPA, could exercise its discretion to address these age-old issues of disparate impact as they relate to the environment. And efforts were made, and I think they were genuine. But what I will say is that what is happening now with the Biden administration is unprecedented. This is not your father's EJ. We have not only EPA and the Department of Justice looking at EJ, but the Department of Energy, HHS. There's really no executive agency that is not affirmatively and aggressively looking at EJ. There have been numerous um, executive orders issued by President Biden over at the Council on, on Environmental Quality. Our friend Brenda Mallory is leading an effort on EJ. So this is really quite unprecedented. And I would also hasten to add there's a lot of great action 
happening at the state level. It's not just Washington, but Trenton and Olympia and Sacramento, Raleigh. Um, these other capitals are playing an important role on EJ as well. Then I'm about to move you into where I was with you, just you know, only a few doors down the hall. Yes. Uh, uh, when I left uh, Department of Justice and I tried to find what home that I was going to have, I came to Beverage and Diamond, which is, you know, celebrated environmental law firm, largely because you were there, because I wanted to be in a place that I could uh, be proud of. And I wanted to be a proud in a place that was committed to things like environmental justice. And, I, and you gave me a home that I've been happy about since that time. But in that course of, you know, you were managing partner then and you became the chairman of our law firm, you you met with countless corporations. I said before, you know, you you put together the African-American General Council and Managing Partner Network. So you're talking to corporations. What are you telling them about environmental justice? Basically, in this podcast, there's a lot of corporate consoles and and people working in corporations, good people listening to this. But what's in it for them? What, what, what kind of things do environmental justice benefit corporations? So tell the audience what you've been telling your corporate officials at your council. Well, thank you, John. And, you know, we have been at this for a while. You were still very much at the Department of Justice where we hosted a program in which companies from all across America came together to talk about EJ, to talk about some of the challenges that they were facing. We also had at that program environmental justice advocates, and we want we really convened a very special group. And I still remember, Jesus is probably at least 10, maybe 15 years ago now. But what we tell them, there are really three or four major points. One, our clients, uh, want to make certain that they are protecting and enhancing the brand of their company. And no one wants to be on the wrong side of environmental law. And our clients uniformly say, we want to do what's right here. Uh, they'd like a bright line, and and they'd like to make certain that uh, their competitors are going to face, will be policed in the same way. And so they want an even playing field. But we talk about the need to protect and enhance their reputation. Listen, investors, the federal government and employees are all demanding a greater transparency and a greater performance on equity and EJ. And this is all happening in the context where there's a greater emphasis on ESG, environment, social, and governance. And these goals are critically important. There are some who believe you should add an extra E in ESG for employees. So what we are also seeing both domestically and internationally that in some jurisdictions on the S side of ESG, there's an emphasis in expanding it to include environmental justice. Employees are also pushing their the companies for which they work to take a lead on these topics. And and companies are starting to incorporate employee views into their internally facing DEI initiatives and their externally facing ESG initiatives. In short, I don't wish to confuse our audience, but this these acronyms are in fact 
related. If you're going to recruit the best talent, and God knows in this context of the pandemic, we're all looking for talented people, people want to be a part of a diverse team. The young people today didn't generally grow up in the same segregated life that I did. And they're used to having friends of different backgrounds, and they want that. And so people that are urging their companies to address EJ are not all black. They're not all men. They're not all poor. And uh, so these are people who want to see a change. So I think this has made a huge difference. And I believe, and I've said this throughout, a company that is uh, telling its story on environmental justice that fails to talk about what it's doing on DEI is missing a material opportunity. Employees typically live in communities all across a state, a region, or a country. They're from some of these very communities. A company can help itself by making clear that the affected communities, that jobs are going to people who live there, that their steps are being taken to hire from these diverse local communities. And I would also say steps are being taken to retain contractors, suppliers, people who provide professional services who are diverse. And this is a way of building trust, and it takes time. A second thing, reason this should be done is it facilitates future project development and the operation and helps mitigate uh, risk uh, related to the opposition of projects. So uh, sometimes you have to go slow to go fast. And that's what my friend and colleague, Tom Rakiki used to say to me. And that means meeting with people in the community, engaging them, finding out what their issues are so that when we come up with mitigation, we're doing something that is, in fact, important to the community. And then we also want to comply with the ever-shifting legal requirements and interpretation. So this requires an adaptive approach in corporate America. Uh, John, I sit on several corporate boards. I'm the lead director at Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company. I chair the audit committee for the Pacific Gas and Electric Corporation, the utility in Northern California. And I'm on the board of APCO Worldwide, a noted consulting firm. And in each instance, we spend a great deal of time talking about ESG. In each instance, we're uh, very conscious of our impact on the environment. And as much as I'm talking about environmental justice, we cannot also ignore climate change. And uh, that's obviously the other really major issue of, the, of our time. And they are related to each other. There's this concept of climate justice. We know that the people who are most adversely impacted from climate change are the poor, are minorities. These are the people we saw in New Orleans. These are the people we saw in Houston. Uh, these are the people we saw in Puerto Rico. So climate is going to impact people. And this is not just a domestic issue, but an international one as well. So I hope I'm addressing that question. My, please forgive that long-winded answer. Uh, that, that was wonderful. And I'm confident that not just me, but our audience would love to keep talking about all of this, but I want to stay within the podcast time. But I do want to ask my last question of you, and, and it, it's it's just this. 
you, you know where we are right now in society. You know all of the turmoil and, and concern. But in this area of, of environmental justice, uh, do you have hope? Do you see things in the future that are going to make a difference, not just for minority communities, but as you say, for poor communities? And, and I'll throw into the mix Native Americans. I'll, I'll throw them as well. You said that this administration's environmental justice is not your grandparents' one, but does that give you hope? Absolutely. So, listen, the environmental justice movement really is local. It starts with people who live and work in these very communities, whether they are Native American communities or Black or Latino or or, or Asian American communities or poor communities, not necessarily bound by race. And so it starts with people. It starts with a generation of lawyers that listens to their clients and doesn't tell the client what the client should do, but rather listens to what the client wants and helps the client achieve his or her goals. And so I'm encouraged by the um, uh, the talented uh, people that I see that are genuinely concerned about EJ. And at our firm, we have a, an amazing young team, uh, Stacy Halliday, Julius Redd, Hillary Jacobs, Rue Musa, and I could go on and on. But the fact of the matter is I'm very proud of what they are doing, and they are taking EJ to another level. We are representing all manner of companies and municipalities all across America addressing environmental issues. I'm encouraged by the tools that the federal and state governments are developing. We're going beyond EJ screen and California screening process, and other states are coming up with these processes and originally designed to ensure that people in the community can protect themselves. And, and God knows that's necessary. But we are encouraging our corporate clients to take advantage of these tools and to use them so they can anticipate challenges in advance. We are encouraging our, our, our clients to go out and meet with the communities that they serve when there isn't a problem so that there is a relationship and an ability to talk about solutions when a problem does arise, and inevitably they do arise. I'm encouraged, John, by the students that I have the privilege of teaching for the last 17 years at the Howard University School of Law. And I was concerned, not just me, but a number of us, about the dearth of diversity in the environmental bar. And like others, whether it's Ralph Bunch or Elaine Locke or the other great professors that are coming to Howard right now in, in modern day America. I just read about a pediatric surgeon who's going to Howard and uh, just joined them this year. And so, and it could go anywhere. We want to make a huge impact. And I'm encouraged by my students who at the Department of Justice, at EPA, throughout the federal government, at our law firm and other law firms across the country, with public interest groups at ELI that are changing things. You know, John, ELI means so much to you and to me. We want to bring the rule of law to environmental issues domestically and internationally. But I'm very proud of the fact that 
now at ELI, we are addressing EJ issues in a way that I don't know that we ever have before. I'm very proud of the fact that I've got five Howard students who are working with seasoned people at ELI, like Ariel King, like Jay Pendergrass, to come up with a monthly, a quarterly reports on EJ. And so this is important so that people do understand the law, so people do understand their rights, so lawyers can better serve their clients. So, John, I, um, listen, I don't know what the future brings, but I know what we bring to the future. And if we bring this enthusiasm for transformational change, if we are committed to coming up with solutions to problems, there is no limit to what we will do. So it is, in some, it is this next generation that uh, gives me hope. And it's been my privilege to work with, uh, to teach, and learn from them. Thank you. Ben, I believe, quite honestly, that people matter in policies. People matter in forward-looking and I am confident, as long as we have you around, to remind us, to guide us, to lead us, to encourage us that there is hope. And it has been an honor uh, for me to lead you through your ba extraordinary background, but also uh, your extraordinary commitment to justice in general and the environmental justice in particular. So on behalf of your entire listening audience, Every member of the podcast group who is listening to you, who I'm sure was just as impressed with you as I have been. Thank you. Thank you, not just for the podcast. Thank you, not just for Environmental Justice Ground Truth podcast series, but thank you for being the Ben Wilson that I know and admire for so many years and someone that we all can look up to and think and say, this is a man who walks the walk. He teaches, he litigates, he consoles, and he does so in the context of his passion of environmental justice. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. And thank you to the Ground Truth team. And, you know, the ultimate thing we always do in EJ is we actually go to the site and see it for ourselves. And that's really what Ground Truthing is about, seeing it for yourself. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ground Truth, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities, founded on the rule of law, and Beverage and Diamond, a national firm specializing in environmental law. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. To learn more about ELI, visit www.eli.org. For more on Beverage and Diamond, visit bdlaw.com.